my father, after he survived the Holocaust, he said, because I appreciate the life that I got, I don't want to live one life. I want to live many lives. And he had this rule that every seven years he would change his profession. It was a feeling that things are changing. It wasn't only a fear. It was also an opportunity. There was something also hopeful about this idea. If things that happened so many times can happen differently, then maybe people can be equal. Hi, welcome to the Book Society podcast. I know it's been a long time, but I'm a composer. I've had a really busy summer and there was a strike going on. So I had to work on a bunch of other stuff and I just couldn't do the show. So that's it. Anyway, we're back. We're going to release episodes as we can. There are a bunch of interviews. So there's a bunch of episodes in the can that we're just getting through and editing and releasing them. Some of them are almost a year old at this point. That's where it's at. So I'm glad that the WGA got what they wanted out of the strike. Hopefully the actors will get their deal. Then we can get back to work. But for those of you who listen to the show and don't know, really, I'm a film and TV composer. That's what my main job is. And I just love books. That's why I do the show, because I love talking about books with people. Anyway, we're back. Here's an episode with Edgar Carrot. It's really great. Enjoy it. My guest is Edgar Carrot. He is an author, speaker, and just all around brilliant guy. His first book included the short story called Siren, which is included in the Israeli matriculation exam in literature. It's a pretty big deal. He's written comics. Nobody said it was going to be fun and Streets of Fury and several others. Short story collection, Happy Campers was very popular and brilliant. The Bus Driver Who Wanted to Be God and Other Stories is the first book of yours that I read and I read it in translation in 2004 and I have been a huge fan ever since. He's written several other books, the most recent of which, and tell me if I'm wrong, is Seven Good Years, which is a memoir. I think it's Fly Already. It's like a story collection. The Seven Good Years is a memoir. So Fly Already, which I read that the literal translation from the Hebrew title is A Glitch at the End of the Galaxy. Yeah, it's funny because sometimes when you switch between languages, you can do something in English that you can do in the Hebrew and vice versa. And that is a strange experience, especially when I have a story that I submit to the New Yorker and they accept it, that uh, Deborah Treisman, they're a fiction editor who's really one of the most brilliant readers I've ever met. Whenever I submit a story, she always say, oh, it's great. Tell me, did you ever consider calling it ta-ta-ta-ta-ta? And it will be the title because, and then when I backtrack, I realize that this title could not work in Hebrew. Now, as for Flower Ready, the title refers to a situation in which there is a father and a son, and there is a guy on the top of a building who's about to jump. And the father tries to convince him not to jump. And the kid tries to convince him to jump because the kid believes he's a superhero and he wants him to fly. So there is a bit there where he says, come on, fly already to the guy. Now in Hebrew, fly already is kind of get out of my sight. It's like kind of fuck off in slang. So if you call it fly already, it's really like you say fuck off. But here you say, when will you fly? Come on, you know, you say, Lucas, you're such a great guy. Come on, I want to see you fly. So it's something like hopeful in English and just rude in Hebrew. Wow. You write in Hebrew exclusively, right? Do you translate your own work sometimes? There were a couple of occasions where I had to write in English. You know, it's like kind of a kidnap situation. <laughs> and, you know, it comes out 
okay, but it's really, really a downgrade. Yeah, I would imagine. And how do you feel when you read your own stories in translation? It's strange because languages work in a different way. And sometimes something that is very fluid in one language that doesn't work as well in another language. And there are some stories of mine that I feel work better in translation. Most of them don't, but there are actually stories where the flow of the story is as if like I wrote this kind of a semi-clanky story that is almost there. And then in the translation, meeting the English language and also passing through the filter of a translator, you know, I've had the chance to work with brilliant translators like Sandra Silverstone and currently with Jessica Quinn. A translation is like, I'm telling you a story and you tell it to another guy. Now, I know you'll tell it better. Sometimes people tell it better. Sometimes people don't get it and they tell the story and it doesn't work. But for example, my late mother, she always told me that my works in a Polish translation read much better than my work in Hebrew. And I think this is both due to the fact that I have an amazing Polish translator who's really a poet in spirit, like Agnieszka Maciejewska, but also to the fact that my mom is a native Polish speaker, so she read it in her mother tongue. And for example, from the other end, my father always claimed that the translation of the Raven of Edgar Allan Poe was much better in Hebrew, because in Hebrew, the language is very much like... So we sound more like ravens. So all the tricks that you need to sound like a raven is basically, you just order a coffee and you're a raven. (laughs) I mean, I have so many questions for you. You know, before I get too deep into the questions I have, I just want to tell you, I guess, I'm a genuine fan. Like I meet a lot of people on this podcast whose work I know, whose work I like, but I read your work when I had just graduated from college. It was given to me by a dear friend of mine who is Israeli and read your books in the army and just loved them. And it came out in translation and he gave me this translation and he said, I need you to give this back to me because it's very difficult to find. And I still have it. I never gave it back to him. We're still good (laughs) friends. (laughs) If I'm a little bit nervous, I apologize. I am in fact a little bit nervous. Oh, thanks. And if I'm a little bit red in the face, it's (laughs) for the same reason. Perfect. So you mentioned your mother. She is the subject of a new-ish piece that you're performing with Ira Glass of This American Life. There is a radio version of it. You guys are also doing a live version of the same piece, the stories. Can you just tell us a little bit about that project and a little bit about your mother? Basically, I'm a fiction writer. I write short fiction and I write also plays and films and screenplays. When my father died, I've published a memoir called The Seven Good Years about the seven years in which both my father and my son could be together and I could feel a part of continuation. My parents were Holocaust survivors, so they didn't have this opportunity. And my mom loved the book. And I'm very close to my parents. I can tell crazy stories about my parents. But she said, oh, this is so much better than the stories that you make up. She loved them too, but she thought that the nonfiction was better. With me, I'm a natural fiction writer. I need to use metaphors to understand where I am. It's much easier for me if I would want to understand what's happening in this podcast to write a story about an alien in the Conan O'Brien show, realizing that he's in a show that got canceled so many years ago. (laughs) No, but I'm saying, I wouldn't say Edward going there. No, it's not my style and it's not the way I think. And, but my mom loved it and she kept nagging me and she said, when will be the next time you write a nonfiction book? 
And my joke was, when you'll die. Because I wrote one when my father died. And then my mom died. And I said, all right. It was a joke, but it's kind of like a promise. And I sat down to write a book about my mom, and I was unable to. And I was very close both to my father and my mother, but my mother was probably the closest person to me ever. It was really like we were totally symbiotic. I'm not sure if in a healthy way, but it was fun. I couldn't write stories. And the idea is that gradually I understood that the reason that I can't write a story is that if there was something very monolithic about my father, he was the presenter of something very positive about being dreamy and not greedy and taking positive lessons from bad things and all this kind of thing, you know, but it all came to one picture. And with my mother, it was totally contradictory because my mother was the most generous person I've ever known. And she was also one of the most murderous people I've ever known. It's strange to write about somebody who all my life I saw helping, but in a couple of situations, I was very much aware not to put her in a situation where she can poison someone. You know, it's really like there is this kind of things that when I tried to write it down, it wasn't comprehensive. And in the end, I made this show in the Jewish Museum in Berlin, which was built on me writing failed text about my mother, trying to capture her and just being able to say, eh, it's almost her, it's from her. And this was an exhibition that ran for, I don't know, a lot of time. And I started to do a show on the exhibition. But I must say, in the long run, the show became more meaningful for me than the exhibition. And then what happened was that Ira came to Israel. They were good friends. And he came to Israel. And basically, they wanted him to do two events. And they wanted him to do two different ones. And there is one that he usually does. And then for the other one, he, they sometimes do live events. So we said, how about we do a live event about the show that we did? And we did it. And it was really, I hope that also for the audience, but it was really like, I cried on stage. People cried in the audience. You know, it was very kind of, I've made a couple of new friends from this. There were two shows because we sold out. So we did two. And now we're going to do it in New York and Philadelphia. And I'm not sure if we'll ever do it again, you know, but there is something about it that is, feels like closure like you know the jews we have this thing called shiva so my mom <laughs> she was not happy about the concept of shiva because she always thought that when she'll die all the people that she didn't like and was able to avoid she will be like kind of a sitting duck they will come to our apartment and eat cookies and put all the crumbles on the sofa and she couldn't even stop it you know we talked about it a little like in a jokey way and she died, I think it's the only day in the year that if you die, they don't see Chiva on you. For our listeners, can you explain what it is? Yes, yes. For all the listeners and the people in the studio, for everybody. So it's basically this Jewish idea that after you die, your family sits usually at your apartment or in their apartment for a week. And people come and comfort them. And there is something very beautiful and humanistic about it because... The idea is that someone close to you dying the next day, what, you go to work, what, you call sick, you go to the beach. So the idea is that people make food for you and many times tell you stories about the people who had died. I heard crazy stories about my dad, you know, stories that I couldn't even dream of. And the idea is that every Jew, when he dies, they see Chiva on him. But there is one day 
a deer if you die at the morning of a Jewish New Year. And they call it the death of a holy man, of a man with no sins. And if you die on this day, don't see Shiva. They say because they don't need to, but technically you can't because it was a holiday. And my mom died on that day. So we never said Shiva for her. And for me, I think that being with Ira on stage, it's kind of closing that Shiva gap. It's sitting with someone close who cares and basically trying to keep something from this unique way of thinking, because really like nobody's objective about the mom, but my mom, she was really something. I don't say this lightly as a fan of This American Life and everything that Ira's ever done. It is one of the best episodes of that show. It really is. Oh, thanks. I'll see you. You won't see me, but I have tickets to come on November 6th in New York. I think some are still available if anyone's listening to this before that time. But highly recommend listening to the show, which we'll put a link to, and I'm excited to see it live. I cried when I listened to it. I listened to it twice. I listened to it again yesterday, and there are moments in it that are just so touching. There are moments in it that are laugh-out-loud funny, and there are moments in it that are almost unbelievably horrifying. And that's a pretty good hour right there, if you can get all those things together. You know, it really struck me the way that you set up the piece and the way that you just described not really being able to write about your mom. I didn't realize until your recent work how much of your style, maybe, and maybe you'll disagree with me, but how much of it is related to the generational trauma of the Holocaust. For sure. For sure. hundred percent. And how do you tell that story? I think that the answer is that you tell the story the way that the Jewish story is told is in these kind of short sometimes fantastical stories. And I wonder if that's intentional, if that's a choice. How have you approached that and how do you see that? Well, I think the fact that I'm a writer has 100% to do with both my parents, even though neither of them wanted me to become an artist. You know, they really didn't. But in a roundabout way, first of all, there were many things in my childhood that had to do with the Holocaust that I kind of took it as some kind of a rule or mantra. One thing was that everything that you need to carry won't be there with you. Until this day, by the way, I don't have anything. If I read a book, if it's good, I give it to a friend. If it's crap, I get rid of it, but I won't keep it. The idea is that everything that you keep can be taken away from you was very, very strong in my life. So basically my answer to it was the stuff that you have here, nobody can take. So there was something almost defensive, all this idea of giving a lot of importance to my thoughts, to my ideas. My parents told me this story and I said, yeah, you know, every generation, they come, they kill your parents, they do this stuff, you know. It was really like I was bracing myself, you know. This was one thing. Now, another thing was that the way that my parents told me the story of the Holocaust was this idea that everything was just like here. And then suddenly strange things happened. They said a Jew can't own more than one coat. They said people should live in this part of town. So this idea was that I understood that the force of inertia is covering something. And the moment that it's broken, you'll be thrown to another place. And as a child, for example, I remember having this anxiety when I would buy something in the store, thinking to myself, if I give this bill to the guy in the store, and then he say, that's $5.99. And I say, I just gave you $20. And he say, no, you didn't. What would I do? 
I mean, if people can send you to a camp, they can certainly say that you didn't give them $20. All this idea of saying, the fact that things work this way means that they work this way. What other ways they can work? And many of my stories are basically about a very mundane situation in which something unpredictable that usually doesn't happen, happened. So I think that this idea of thinking out the scenarios is something that in the beginning came from some kind of a survival mode, but it just became a mode of thinking. It's what makes me happy saying, ha, imagine this dog playing Tetris. Ah, I'm going to beat him. So it's not like a totally negative, but the root of it really came from this thing. And I think, you know, it's really like, I'm going to tell you, it sounds like a stoned thing to say, because it's something that I never said before. But what I think is that many times we say people tell stories, but you know, in life, there's so many things that are stories because selling you something is telling you a story. Telling an excuse is telling you a story. Promising you something is telling you a story. Everything is a story. And I think the way that my parents would tell a story is as if like, you know, in young people, Jews are pray. We pray so the sky will open. It's like the heart of God will open. So basically the idea of telling a story is basically kind of praying or seeking some kind of humanity. And like any prayer, it usually comes when you're really, really down. So I think that it's always this mixture of people that in real life I may be scared of or critical of or whatever. And the idea of writing stories, diving into them, finding something human and surfing on it, it almost has a therapeutic function. This idea of saying everything is human in a sense, something scares me, some things are not right, but that I can dive there and be there. And I think, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a Raskolnikov or Walter White. This idea, through literature, we can reach a place where we're in some kind of a connection with a fictional character and we resent some stuff and we agree with other and we're not happy with what the character did, but we understand where it came from. So I think that for me, this is the kind of storytelling that I learned from my parents. It's a way of understanding the other. And through that understanding reality, not kind of summing it up, but diving into its ambiguous nature. Wow. This explains a lot of things. The idea of stories as therapy is, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't know Hebrew, but in Hebrew, the word for words implies that the word is something physical. Like words are real things. I don't know if linguistically, but the idea is that because of the Ten Commandments, you shall not make yourself a picture or a statue, then basically there is something very obscure and literary about this way of thinking. The idea of people of the book, before that, there were people of the deity statue, of the temple, of whatever. And these are people who basically just tell you sentences and you don't understand what they want from you. <laughs> Interesting. I see the stories that you tell, and I live in Hollywood. This town literally exists for the power of narrative. It exists to create stories and to ingest stories and to understand stories and to manipulate stories and send them out into the world. Having lived here for several years, that's how I see everything. You don't know this about me, Edgar, but I'm a composer and that's what I do for a living is write music. 
often for television. And I think about it in the same way that you would think about writing a story. I think about what emotions am I doing? What story am I telling? How are things going from A to B? Man, there was just so much in what you said about the trauma of the Holocaust leading to the need to share these stories and also the idea that the stories in your mind are real and are the only things that you can really take with you if you have to get up and run. Yeah, sorry, I almost wept when you said that because I've never really put together why I feel that way because I was born in the United States. I've never known anything like that, but I have that feeling constantly. Like I have this feeling that if something happens, how the hell am I going to get out of here? This society is this close. And I married a woman from the Midwest who's white and she doesn't understand this part of me. She doesn't understand why I'm always feeling this way. And it's because my grandfather fought in World War II and my mother is an immigrant to the United States. So they both had these experiences where in the morning, things were one way. And by the afternoon, they were a completely different way. Or in the morning, things were one way. And then a year later, everything was way worse. And it had just happened by degrees. And there's nothing you can do about it. But again, I think that it's a two-sided coin in the sense that, for example, my father, after he survived the Holocaust, he said, now, because I appreciate the life that I got, then he said, I don't want to live one life. I want to live many lives. And he had this rule that every seven years he would change his profession, which was very strange because some years of my childhood we were bankrupt and really poor and other years we were well off and then we were poor again because he picked another profession that he was less good at. And there was something about this that it was a feeling that things are changing. The fact that they seem stable is not true, that it wasn't only a fear, it was also an opportunity. There was something also hopeful about this idea that if things that happened so many times can happen differently, then maybe people can be equal. If they can send you to the camp, maybe they can say that you're equal. That's the whole idea because telling a story in the end is sharing a perspective. And basically, I think the perspective of two of the most optimistic Holocaust survivors has something complex in it because there is some kind of a belief in humanity, but fear from human beings. Maybe it's all those things that we all know, but kind of in full volume, which makes it kind of more uh, ear-blowing. I've never heard that perspective. And what an amazing thought that the Holocaust survivor might see the camps and think, well, this is unthinkable. But if this is possible, anything's possible. Positive things are also possible. I think that the feeling that my parents had, especially my mom, let's say they lived a life pretty similar to the ones that we lived. And then they were ripped from this life and thrown to life again with no attachment, with no lines, with my mother. Everybody she knew had died. So she was kind of rebooted. And I think there was something about this entry to life that all the time made her see things a little bit like an outsider. You know those people when they say, I bet that's the wise thing to say. I don't like the way that you behave next to your mom. Always when your mother is around, you do this, you do this. You know when people say that about, now my mom didn't have that because all the people who had this effect or connection to her died when she was a child. So there was something in a sense pure in the ways that she reconnected with life. Because let's say when my mom would talk about the Holocaust, she wouldn't talk about the Holocaust. She would talk 
about herself. I said to Ira, it's like a periodical movie. She's like Scarlett Johansson. Which period? Uh, it's Second World War. Where did it happen? In Poland. But it's a story about a girl. Usually, when people talk about the Holocaust, they basically take their part in a big story. It's a little bit like in the Olympic Games when all those people do those signs that they shoot them from an helicopter and then they say, ha-ha, you know, here's for sports or whatever. So usually you play your part. You say, we all know what the Holocaust is and now this guy is going to tell you another thing in this big picture. But with my mom, she was telling her story and her root was inside herself. It wasn't in that period. It was a little child, you know, thinking, trying to understand something that is not understandable. And everything that came out of it was her manual to understanding and feeling in this world, which was totally unique. And it didn't come through generation. It just came from surviving. That's really interesting that she had to kind of invent her own way of being because she didn't have that continuity, which is so essential to the Jewish faith. I'm a horrible, horrible Jew. I'm Jewish really in name only. My grandmother was Jewish. That is my connection. Let me ask you, what do you think it means to be Jewish? You're Israeli, you're a Jewish writer, you've traveled the world. I would love to hear your thoughts. Talking about terrible Jews, I'm, in the best case, I'm an agnostic. But I would say that what I always liked about Judaism, you know, and I remember that I liked it as a child, is that there's so many stories where people argue with God, and God takes part in this argument, you know, it could be Job, Abraham trying to protect Sadom, you know, Jonah not wanting to give prophecy. There was something about it that when I learned about it, I said, God is much better than my teacher. Because when I say to my teacher, but, and they say, shut up. But God doesn't say shut up. He actually argues with you and he's God. <laughs> so I thought that it was almost a mitzvah to argue. That it was like we were made in the image of God and God wanted us to question things and not to automatically do what we're being told, and to be reflexive. So for me, this reflexiveness and this idea of not taking things for granted is the most Jewish thing. You know, the Jews, religious Jews, they learn in what they call chevruta, which means in couples. And the reason that you learn in couples is that because you read the text, and each of them gives his version of what he understood from the text, and then they argue between each other, which one is right. And in the end, Nobody's right, but each of them kind of gets something from the other's perspective. We now have a government that is religious and Jewish and horrible and nothing that I ever recognize in Judaism. But I'm saying Judaism, as I see it, is really this ability not to be a follower, but to be somebody who's reflexive and responsible and has to find his own way. There is something I think very innovative in this kind of religion. It's kind of religion saying, you know, I don't know, just manage it. <laughs> Man, that's fascinating. I think the one Hebrew word that I do know, Hevruta, the person who gave me your books, I'm an atheist. And I guess he would consider himself agnostic. That is a fine and meaningless distinction. We sat down and read the Torah one section at a time over the course of about two years together and did exactly what you described. We started at the beginning, we would read a couple of chapters till we got to a logical stopping point, And then we would argue about it for about an hour and then we would eat bagels. It's a great way to know the Bible and it's a great way to know a friend. Yes, I completely agree with that. I think I value the friendship more than what I got out of the Bible. I mean, what I got out of the Bible was that 
there's not like a theme. It's just like a lot of stuff that happens. And some of it is interesting and some of it is speaks to our own time. And some of it probably made sense if you were a desert nomad, but doesn't really make any sense now. And what I got from that was just people put their own meaning into literature and they put their own meaning into narrative. First of all, I think that the stories are pretty amazing, but there is something about this collectiveness, which I really like because it's kind of disjointed. It gives you this kind of feeling that you speak to somebody and this entity doesn't want to impress you. When you read the Bible, you really don't think that God wanted it to be a bestseller. <laughs> it didn't say I'm going to have a happy ending, you know, so people will buy it. I think that there is something about this contradictory nature of stories and different ways of storytelling that I found very interesting. I think that what makes me more of an agnostic is not the fact that I do not believe that there are higher powers. I totally believe that I don't understand the universe. It's just that I truly suspect anyone who says that he can understand and sum up those higher powers. So when people say, there is this high entity, it doesn't want you to eat pork. I say, come on, you know, come on. It's all knowing, you know, my pork is the universal problem. Come on. So there is something about it that if there is a God, it wouldn't come with a manual. Sure. I agree with that. And I've said on this podcast many times that my religion is just that there are things that I don't understand and I'm comfortable with that. I believe that there are things that are in principle beyond human understanding. Yeah. And also in practice, just beyond my personal understanding. And that's just what it is. And in the end, again, you know, it's not a game show. It's not like you say, oh, I know God created us in seven days da, 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 and say, all right, you get a thousand dollars. Please step you. We're not supposed to get it. We're supposed to live it. I want to ask you some questions about your Polish heritage. Do you consider yourself a Polish writer in exile? No, no, it's something that my mom would always say because she really loved reading me in Polish. But I must say that I first visited Poland when I was, I think, 25 or 27. I don't speak Polish, but somehow in a strange way, because I think of the trauma of the war, there was something about it that I was able to create very personal and intimate conversation with people. And I felt many times that I met people who had a biography that was similar to mine, or that they could understand many things that I was speaking about. So I do have a strong affinity to Polish people. It's a place that I love visiting, but I wouldn't say I'm Polish. Like I would say I'm Polish, but I'm saying I wouldn't say I'm as Polish as I'm Israeli. Or as Polish as your mom wanted to maybe yeah. paint you as an artist. Edgar, thank you so much for meeting me. It's not early for you, but it's early for me. I just want to close by asking you the question that I ask everybody to end the podcast, which is to recommend two books to our listeners. Well, it's difficult to pick only two. Can I pick writers? Sure. I love Kafka. I think that there is something with Kafka that I discovered him during my compulsory army service. And I was a very bad soldier. And there was something comforting to see that there's somebody who doesn't get things even more than I do. This kind of feeling of being a misfit and I love Kafka's humor and this kind of freedom and liberty, this kind of feeling that he's writing for himself. Also, I love Vonnegut, Kurt Vonnegut. And there is something about Kurt Vonnegut that is this idea, as I said, like a story is like a human interaction. And I think that there are writers 
who are a little bit like mentors or teachers or guides. And there is something about Vonnegut. What I like about him is like this guy comes to you with a six pack and you drink beer and you see stuff. And the whole idea is that you don't have this tension of expecting words of wisdom. And sometimes when they come, you kind of understand it in hindsight. And I find it a very good position for discourse. Sometimes when I do speaking events, someone introduces you, he or she can sometimes say, now you're going to hear Edgar Keret. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard him, but this is going to change your life. Edgar Keret. And then I say, what are you doing? Because I think that the things that I find most difficult with what literature had turned to, what happened with literature is it turned into some kind of a secular alternative to religion, making a writer some kinds of priests. All these kind of authors photo. I remember my first author photo, I was jumping in the air and then the guy said, ah, it's a great photo. And then he said, so you're a stand-up comedian, right? I said, no, 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 I'm a writer. He said, oh shit, can you go like this? My photo was going like this. So it's like writers are people that the knuckles are glued to their chin, you know? <laughs> so there is something about this feeling or aura of importance around writing that is very sterilizing, you know, because people read Dostoevsky in their newspaper supplement and they read Dickens this way and peasants saw Shakespeare and peed on the stage. And it was as much as a masterpiece, but people didn't talk about it being a masterpiece. I'm going to say a sentence that will contradict myself, but I realize it and I still do it. When I speak or when I go, I never mention the fact that I'm a professor. Now I did. <laughs> because I find it irrelevant. So I will want people to say, please meet Professor Kerry. I think that if you're somebody who's not good at anything, or that if you're somebody who wants to marry a rich widow, then you should say you're a professor. <laughs> but adding this information, I wouldn't go on stage in the same way I wouldn't say I'm Professor Carrot. I wouldn't say I'm Edgar Carrot and I'm extremely flexible. Because <laughs> if it will come up in the conversation, you know, if my pen will fall, I will bend down, you know, without bending my knees. <laughs> but right now it's not here. And there is something about literature that I feel it's almost suffocating. When I was young, I noticed how people talk about movies and talk about books in a different way. Because when talking about movies, they talk about, you know, and he's chatting, oh my God, she's so good looking, you know? So all this kind of thing. And when talking about books, they go away. I don't think Franzen is as good as he was. There is something about it. You become pompous automatically. And I love writers, you know, like Vonnegut or Carver from a different angle that puncture that and they say, I'm not coming here because I'm smarter than you. I'm coming here because I'm a human being and there's an access. Here, you can come through my ear and enter my brain. Please come in. But I'm not telling you this is the best and most beautiful brain you ever see. I'm just telling you that I won't keep anything. I'll show everything to you. So this is the kind of writer, a reader contract that I like. You know, I think that there are writers like Janet Frame, for example, that do it beautifully. And there are science fiction writers that do it, like Harlan Ellison, telling the story without looking in the mirror before you're telling it, without caring if you have some parsley between your teeth, because your story is not about your teeth. Your story is about something else. 
I think the difference between the way people talk about movies and television and the way they talk about literature is that in a conversation about films, people talk about story and they talk about narrative. In literature, they talk about craft. That's the indication of a possibly of a dying art form. Edgar, what you just said about the photos, I experienced the exact same thing in music. Like I write music for orchestras and I write music for string ensembles, but I'm not precious about it. I want the audience to have a good time. That's my goal. Exactly as you said, like maybe I'm not the best composer in the world, but I think this will be fun. Let's have fun for an hour together. And every time I've done a publicity photo, a little bit different, but for composers, it's profile and it's like backlit. You want it to be black and white and you need to look very ponderous, right? And I always try to do like these things and put my arms up. I do exactly what you say. There is something maybe in our society that has been secularized that people want to look to artists as somehow better or more equipped to deal with the morass of humanity than they are and that we have something to explain to them or something. I feel it's almost like a reflex. Human beings, they gather together, listen to somebody. This guy used to say, hey, God, that God is that, da, 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 da. And then you say, oh, we don't do that anymore. And say, okay, so I'm your fascist leader. And say, we don't do that anymore. And they say, oh, so we need to have a geyser. I don't know. Uh, how about Paul Oster? He's a nice guy. Let's get him on stage, you know? And there is something about this interaction that is totally not literary in nature. And if I can get to the present and let's say start ranting, what I think is that the dialogue that humanity has with art was always a bit broken, but now it's totally crazy. I'll tell you something. I have this newsletter and I write there all kinds of biographical pieces and sometimes I write them and I don't publish them. And currently there is a piece that I'm kind of struggling with because it's very, very tricky. And it's really a piece about how I taught our son the N-word. And it's a very interesting story because what happens in the story, we were overseas and Suddenly I realized that he knows much better English than I thought he did because he's been watching TV and stuff. And then out of nowhere, I had this anxiety that maybe he knows the N-word. And maybe when you talk to people, I don't know, you see a guy in the street, he saw it in a movie. I don't know, like he sees old movies from the 70s. He'll say, and then I thought, and then I'm totally fucked. If he says that I'm in the 10th festival, I can't have it. I was really, really hysterical but trying to hide it. And I was explaining to my son that there are some words that you are not supposed to say. And he really resented that. He said, if they don't want people to use this word, they shouldn't make it up. He said, the moment that you have a word, it exists. What do you mean not to say it? And I said, yeah, because it's very offensive. And he was nine years old. And he says, but it's just a word. If somebody says a word to me, then I shouldn't beat him up because it's just a word. Like, what is it about this word? And basically, it becomes super mythological, like Jehovah, you know, this conversation. And what happened was, in this conversation, at some stage, I started explaining to him, basically about Afro-American people, because he comes from a country where we don't have Afro-Israeli people. And as a child, he didn't see many people who are from a different race, who are Black. And I don't even know what I'm, Allowed to say, I'm not allowed to say, I'm so stressed. So, so, so the thing is, is that I started talking about that and then I started talking about slavery and then I started talking about freedom. And in the end, we talked about freedom. And I couldn't help thinking, I said, I had this conversation in the wrong order. I should have talked 
very quietly and very softly and very happily about freedom. And then explain to him that sometimes it's not so. And then, and then, and then, and then. but the word is so big that it kind of makes the entire word behind us so small. In the end, it's all keeping to those rules. Don't touch the electric fence. Even the ability in the intimacy of me and my son in a room kind of explaining to him something became difficult. Now I'm saying, as a writer, my tools are words. And living in a world where people say, please do your stuff, uh-uh, but without this word. But I'm saying, look, words are for ideas. Stories are a safe space. You know, people like to talk about safe space. Stories are the only safe space in the universe, or at least they're supposed to be. Because I can tell you, a shopping mall will never be a safe space. You know why? Because if it's a place in which people will stop harassing gay couples, it will stop being safe for the elderly religious homophobe who goes there to buy his homophobe <laughs> stuff. You know, it never, <laughs> it never works for everybody. And the idea is that we don't need to live in a safe environment. We just need to endure and survive. And when we want to go really wild, then we write it. And we burn stuff and we break stuff and we say stuff we're not allowed to. And if we can't do it there, if we can't do it in words, if we can't do it in stories, then in the end, we will do it by storming the capital or by canceling somebody for something that is very, very minor. You saw so many movies about murderers and liars and thieves and people who plunge us into war. It's not that you're not allowed to see things that are bad. It's not that you're not allowed to hear things that are bad. It's just that you should process them and say, yeah, that's story stuff. That's fantasy stuff. And that's stuff that I don't do. And I really, really believe that this idea is that when I started my way and I would give readings, I knew that somebody could get up and say, you know, but I knew exactly who those people were. They would be right-wing fascists. They would be religious fanatics. But today, anybody can get up. Maybe I don't have enough characters from a gender or from ethnicity. But my story is not about gender or ethnicity. It's about how somebody who drowns waits for all his life to pass in front of his life. And then he sees that they screwed him and nothing passes in front of his life. And that's what it's about. It's not about his testicles or her vagina or if they're Asian. You know, it's really, really crazy because sometimes when I did stuff for TV or movies, they would say to me, there are like three Caucasian people in the room. We need to diversify. And then they say, how about we make this guy Chinese? And I say, yeah, but he's evil. Should we make him Chinese? Because the other guy is a big star and we can't uh, take that. So we'll make him evil to make things right. So people will think the Chinese are actors. In scenes, uh, there is the big star and the evil guy. And if he's not Chinese, he's Hispanic. I simply don't get it. Or for example, this idea, you know, now we had a movie called Gorda. And there was a big fuss that Golda is not played by a Jew. Well, Anthony Hopkins, he's not truly a psychopath. And he was in Silence of the Lamb. It's acting. He pretends to be one. If we don't want only psychopaths to play psychopath killers, 
let non-Jews play Jews. You know, it's mad, this idea of trying to manage a space that is not the space that you live in. Like you feed your Tamaguchi while you starve. There are some things that are nice, that's something that are not nice. But in the end, there is a movie and it's good or human or not human and all the other things. It's like sometimes it seems as if like the less important things became the more important one. And the idea is, I think in the end, it's all this interaction between a reader and a writer that if in the past I would say, hi, I'm Edgar, I'm a writer, I'm crazy, want to visit my books? And then you say, oh, I know what, okay, I'm bored, I come, you know. And today it's really, hi, I'm Edgar, I'm crazy. What kind of crazy? Happy ending crazy? Diversified crazy? Ah, unique? What kind of unique are you? What will I learn if I read your book? Not to trust big banks? It's like this kind of a anxiety-driven thing that when you write a book, it's all about people kind of looking at the whole, opening the door with a chain. I say, it's just a bloody book. You know, it's bullshit. The, the world is being <laughs> destroyed on page 25. And you're in this world, so everything is okay. I'm just saying stuff, and maybe what I say will bring the images to your mind, and if you don't like them, you know, you can hit yourself on the head really hard and you forget everything. Why do you want to control it so much? It comes from the same set of mind that goes to haunt Salman Rushdie. Allah doesn't care what Rushdie writes. It's just the people who care, and they should set free. I'm Puerto Rican, and... For years, basically a Latino in a movie was a drug dealer. That was the role that was available to you or a criminal. And so that representation is important, but it's not important for its own sake. I completely agree with you. And when you're describing the scene where like, well, let's just make this guy Chinese because we need a Chinese person. That is pointless. And it's just a bad way to be. But if you've got a character and it's someone's friend, just make it whoever the best actor is for the role. And if the guy can be Puerto Rican, make him Puerto Rican. You'll make the Puerto Ricans happy and it doesn't affect the story. It's funny because you work in TV. If you're doing a mugging thing today in the street, then basically it will be very, very difficult to cast a minority for the mugger. But if you want to cast a woman, people would say it's great. You know why? In people's mind, there are no women muggers. You know, there are, of course. It's a stereotype. But the idea is that you can show a minority in a bad light if intuitively people would think it's not true. (laughs) Like, what is this mess? And again, what I want to say, let's say what you want to fight is racism. Now, I saw movies that make you a more thinking human being or a better human being. I saw movies like that. And I saw movies with numbers of Hispanic people casting them. I don't see a correlation between the two. I think that you can see a movie about three rich white men on a raft. And the effect of it will be that when you see somebody who's different from you, you'll be nicer to them. Judging it by those parameters is really like judging a book by the numbers of letters that you have or about how thick the pages are. It's a perspective. You judge it by its effect. I completely agree with you. And there's sort of two levels to this for me. One is that as a Latino, I'm comfortable getting work because of my parents' heritage. But the Hollywood answer to what you just said would be that 
if you don't think about casting in this way, you're going to end up casting white people all the time because they are currently the majority. My answer to Hollywood is that it's so interesting how everybody wants to diversify characters, but that if you check the heads of all the major studios and all the big agencies, they are all white men. So I would want to live in a world where you diversify the position and not the product. I don't have a career and I'm already thinking it. You know? <laughs> You'll never work in this town again, Edgar. <laughs> I never worked before. <laughs> no, so I say, I would go to the head of Sony Studios and I say, how about a deal? Take talented people of all kinds and let them do whatever they want and go home and let somebody who's not white and the men had the studio. Do we have a deal? And I think that it would make better films. And I think it would also make a better ecosystem. But, you know, I'm just an old guy from a desert. You're probably right. I want to tell you one thing and I want to ask you one final question. Just to address the, when you do speaking engagements and people stand up and say like, why did you do this instead of this? So I've gotten that too. And I've been able to shut it down. I just dismiss it as like, oh, I get this question all the time. This is why did you write the thing that you wrote instead of the thing that I would have written question? Because the answer is there is no answer and you're not actually asking a question. You're trying to make a statement. And so your statement has been made. Let's move on. One of my first readings was in a big news store in a shopping mall and they didn't publicize it well. And people didn't know me that well. Very few people came, a couple of people, but it was like the worst weather ever in Tel Aviv. And the store was very close to a place where many homeless people stay. So when it started raining, it was the only thing that was open. And they served coffee. They gave coffee to the people in the reading. So basically what happened was that when I came to the reading, there were about 30 people there. There were like one couple that came to hear me and 28 homeless people that didn't want to go out because it was hailing. And it was a very interesting interaction. And I was reading a story and some of them wanted to comment and they said really, really moving and smart things. It was a very interesting thing because they were not forced to go there. They were just there. And then after 20 minutes, in the middle of the story I was reading, I see a guy standing up and like, you know, like in school, kind of wanting to speak. And I stopped reading and say, yes. And he said, I don't want to be rude, but how many people are we here? And I would say, I don't know, about 30. And he says, for how long have we been here? And I said, about 30 minutes. And he said, 30 people. And how many of us really had the chance to speak? I would say that you spoke 90% of the time. <laughs> and I said, the guy has a point. It's like, there's so many people here. They want to share something. And basically I said to him, do you want to speak? And he said, yes. And he basically described the night before in which he was unable to sleep and all kinds of weird things that happened to him. And it, it was interesting. If somebody would say to me, you want to go and see this homeless guy telling you what it means to be a homeless guy, I would go. So what I, I really want to say is that when I go to the reading, I don't really believe they own the reading. I think if anything, I say, why are all those people sitting there listening to me? <laughs> what am I saying? I must be saying something smart. I should listen. You know, it could help my life. I could be less miserable. But I take it for granted. Sometimes people come and in the end, they want to say something. And sometimes it's exciting and sometimes it's boring. I've been saying a lot of boring things too. So I'm very open to that. You alluded to before, you said that writers used to be revered like gods. 
and that now that writing was something else and that you would tell me if I had the patience for it. I'm inviting you. I'm telling you I have the patience for it. What do you think writing is now? I did it a little bit without your invitation. And what I thought, I thought that if writers were elevated and I hated that, almost this idea, by the way, I think is very present in the very good changes that we're going through. If he or she is a genius, then they're allowed to do things that other people because of geniuses. So this was really sick. And this is one of the many things that are being cured and repaired now. But what happened is now that I think that if writers were more than the readers, now we can't use the guest's elevator anymore. Now we're really those people that you can kick around because there is something about writing that it puts you in a position of vulnerability. And somehow there was some kind of a unspoken agreement that because I write to you about how I only have one testicle and nobody had ever smiled to me in my life, that you say, oh my God, this guy was open with me, so I, I wouldn't call you one testicle every time I would see you, right? You know, it, this is the kind of agreement that we have. But right now, as an artist, you're in a vulnerable position, both because you expose yourself and also because you're dependent on audiences. Now, unlike other people who can do all kinds of stuff, you, before you move, you can get canceled. You know, you can get canceled for a tweet. You could get canceled for people not understanding your story. It doesn't have to be that bad. I remember movie, there was a lot of talks about the idea that the guy who played the supporting characters there shouldn't get an Oscar because he plays a racist guy, very racist. And basically the movie doesn't, do anything with the fact that he's racist. Like, I mean, he's alive in the end. Like the director didn't come and say, I'm going to kick you in the head because you're racist, which means that something is wrong with it. And I'm saying that in real life, I'm tiptoeing on eggs all my life. Really, I'm saying, because I think all my life I had this tendency to tell people what I think. It got me into a huge amount of problem. You know, we could do a just a show about that. Basically telling people what I think. And I realized it was a bad thing. And I don't tell people what they think. I'll never tell you what I think about your podcast. <laughs> Maybe I say something. I understood. I know the rules. But I can write about it. And now people say, no, no, no. You can't write about it. So should I swallow it and suffocate? It just doesn't seem like a good plan. And with me, it's with everything that people speak. When Kanye West says, I think Hitler is a cool guy. Yeah? He's a guy. Who used to think, I once saw him in a reality, he sells those really cool sneakers. And basically, if we would live 300 years ago, he would be, let's say, the village's singer or the village's shoemaker. And if in the middle of the night, he would open the window and say, hey, guys, I like Attila the Han. <laughs> so people would say, shut up, Kanye, go to sleep, it's 2 a.m. And that would be that. <laughs> no, really. I mean, people dying in the Ukraine, it's real. This is just bullshit. I mean, the word is being ripped apart. And we're saying, what did you say that? What did you say that? You live in a country where people are not allowed to have abortions, but you will not see any Puerto Rican drug dealer anymore. You're going to have 16 children, my friend. But no Puerto Rican drug dealer. Like I'm saying, let's get our priorities straight. Let's say, first thing, people with horns can't enter the capital. And when we manage that, <laughs> we will start micromanaging other things. 
I'm just going to let you have the last word on that because that was amazing. And that's going to be the end of the show. Edgar Carrot, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that someday, maybe in private, you will tell me what you think about the podcast, but I know that you actually won't. It was really a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. The next time you have a book out, I hope you'll come back and promote it. And I look forward to seeing you on November 6th. Is that the only show in New York? Or are there two nights? One in New York and in Philadelphia on November 15th. I'm saying a date as if I know it. I hope I'm right. I will double check. We'll put links in the description. Highly recommend going to see the show if you can. Highly recommend going to the library or the bookstore and just going into the carrot section and picking literally anything off the shelf. You're going to love it. I won't say he's the greatest writer in the world. It's fine. It's good writing. I'll let you make your own decision. But what I can tell you is that Edgar Caret is extremely flexible. <laughs> so thank you. This episode is brought to you in collaboration with the Miami Book Fair. They are this year in 2023 celebrating their 40th anniversary. The Miami Book Fair is the best place to engage with ideas and the authors that you love. You can meet authors that you know. You can meet authors that you don't know yet. If you're listening to this podcast, if you can hear my voice, the Miami Book Fair is for you. It is the week before Thanksgiving in November every single year. Miami Book Fair on all the socials and miamibookfair.com for more information. You can stream stuff online there too. So very cool. If you're coming, let me know. We'll meet up. Our guest next week will be Bob Keeling. He is the author of Good Day Sunshine State, which is a really cool book about how the Beatles ended up in Florida for nine days after they did the Ed Sullivan show. So stick around for that. That will be another Miami Book Fair episode. Thank you for listening to the Book Society podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Santiago Ramones, the one and only. We're so glad to have him back. And I'm the host, Lucas Cantor Santiago. Go to our website, booksocietypod.com. Sign up for our newsletter. Someday I'm going to send one out. But it's just good to know who's listening. Sometime when I have some interesting information, I will send it out to you. You can also go to the website and get in touch with me directly if you want. If you want to recommend a guest, that's also a great place to go. If you want to be a guest, have your publicist call me. How do you say nevermore in Hebrew? Adendor. 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 <laughs> <laughs>